So now, Father, we pray uh, as we come to you, as we look at this text, uh, that you would help us, Holy Spirit, to do the work we need to do to make Jesus greater in our lives and make him greater than any other name, uh, that we would leave this place encouraged, but not thinking about things we need to do differently or things uh, we need to accomplish, but Give us thoughts, great, deep, wonderful, glorious thoughts about who our God is that we worship and the freedom and the joy that comes with being a believer in Christ. So we pray you'd help us, uh, keep us from distractions, keep us from all the things that would occupy our minds. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Hey, there are two schools of thought uh, that form how you think about your emotions as Westerners. And sometimes we're down the stream from things, and we uh, don't even know what actually has kind of formed our thoughts. The first one is called Epicureanism. About 100 years before Christ, Epictetus uh, was the philosopher who put together this theory. And Epicureanism basically says this, when you have any emotion that's bad, that's sorrowful, uh, anything that's hard or difficult, Here's how you solve that. You solve that by seeking pleasure. You find a way to make yourself happy. You just find a way to get happy somehow. It doesn't matter what it is. Uh, Find some way to deal with your hard emotions, the difficult emotions, uh, through pleasure. Matter of fact, on the main thoroughfare where the school was that Epictetus taught, they had um, a garden there, and the garden had a sign over it, and the sign over it said this, Stranger, you would be good to stay here for a while, for the highest good is pleasure. The highest good is you just enjoying yourself. In other words, Bobby McFerrin, just don't worry, just be happy. That's the whole point of everything. Don't worry about anything, just be happy. I've never done this study, but uh, somebody should do it. I think in every major city in the world, there's a uh, restaurant called the Epicurean. And it's usually a Greek restaurant. You know, it's a Greek restaurant that says, you might have had a horrible week. Come to the Epicurean, drown your sorrows with a euro and extra fries. You know, that's what they're promoting. Come here and enjoy yourself. Come here and have pleasure. I don't think in any major city anywhere you will ever find a restaurant called Stoicism or the Stoic. You know, come either the Stoic. That's the other Greek philosophy. Uh, Epicureanism was about 100 years before Christ. Stoicism is about 100 years after Christ. Uh, You can think of the people Seneca, the great Roman emperor uh, Marcus Aurelius. And unlike Epicureanism, where they wore emotion and feelings on their sleeves, Stoicism would say this, just buck it up. If you have any kind of emotion, you know, have courage, have temperance. Matter of fact, you shouldn't feel anything. So, for example, Marcus Aurelius said in his famous meditations, choose not to be harmed, and you won't feel harmed. Don't feel harmed, and you haven't been. In other words, let your mind just convince you that this doesn't hurt. Don't do anything with your emotions. Tamp them down. That's what Stoicism would say. And most of us live between those two poles, Epicureanism and stoicism. Now, here's the question, and if we could, can we turn on the lights somewhere along the way? We forgot to do that. Um, here's the 
the question I have at hands. What, what kind of home did you grow up in? Just think right now on your home. What kind of home did you grow up in? Did you grow up in a home where you had to be happy all the time and your parents couldn't deal with your emotions? Uh, did you grow up in a home where uh, your dad would say to you often, quit your crying? You know, did you grow up in a home with kind of like stoicism? Did you grow up in a home where if anything was difficult or hard, it was solved by just going to the lake or going out to a restaurant or, or doing something fun? Let's not think about our difficult emotions. Let's be Epicureans. Let's just distract ourselves with that with pleasure. Or did you grow up in a home that's different, where uh, emotion was looked down upon? And maybe you've even heard your mom or your dad say, I don't care how you feel. Now, let me ask this further question. What's the role of emotions in your life? What's, what's been your relationship with your emotions? Do you tend to look down on people who are too emotional? For example, when I get teary in a sermon, do you roll your eyes? <laughs> do you say, oh, here he goes again, the weeping pastor, you know, wearing his emotions on his sleeves. Do you tend to look down on people who are emotional? Or do you tend to be suspicious of people who aren't emotional? I tend to be suspicious of people who can watch one of those videos on YouTube where the military dad comes home and surprises his high school daughter at a basketball game. If you don't shed a tear about that, I just feel like something's wrong with you. Like it's fundamentally, you know, like how could you not cry at that? What's been your role with emotions? It's important because scripture actually helps us with this. Scripture, as if you're new to Mitchell Road, God wants to redeem all things. Scripture helps us know how we're to deal with our emotions. And in the Psalms, every human emotion is found in the Psalms. So Psalm 42, let's go there quickly. Verse 1, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, when I shall come and appear before God. Here's point number one. Point number one is this. Emotions often reflect your desires. So the psalmist says, this analogy with a deer, I am panting, I am exhausted, I am tired. But really what that is, what that emotion is, is a longing for God. A longing for him to fulfill that part of me. Here's what I, I'm going to give you plenty of times to stop and think during the sermon. But I want you to think what emotion you might be dealing with and how that should lead you to the deeper fulfillment of who God is. For example, I've told you before, sometimes I have just a crippling sense of loneliness. And that is, I've learned, a call from Christ to greater intimacy with him. Sometimes you might have a fear and that's an invitation from God to trust that he's sovereign and that he will provide. Sometimes you might be anxious. That's the emotion. And that should lead you to the reality that God owns a cattle on a thousand hills, that he's not going to let one hair from, fall from your head without the will of the Father in heaven. The emotion that you feel at some point should lead us to the deepest desires of what your heart wants, what it longs for. The psalmist says, I, my soul is panting. I'm dehydrated. I'm parched. But what I really want, verse 2, I really want my soul thirst for you. My soul actually longs for you, to know you. And when will that happen, says the psalmist? 
Now, J.I. Packer, I had the chance to spend the weekend with J.I. Packer, one of the greatest scholars in the history, literally, of uh, Western Christianity. J.I. Packer, very, very, very bright guy. Um, he said this, and I think the quote will be on the screen. Packer said, but for all this, we must not lose sight of the fact that knowing God is an emotional relationship as well as an intellectual one and a volitional one and could not indeed be a deep relation between persons were it not so. The believer is and must be emotionally involved in the victories and vicissitudes of God's cause in this world. Just as Sir Winston's personal staff were emotionally involved in the ups and the downs of the war, the Second War, Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of Great Britain, Believers rejoice when their God is honored and vindicated and feel the acutest distress when they see God flouted. What's Packer saying? This great scholar, brilliant mind. What Packer's saying is this, get in the game emotionally. The reason why your Christianity might feel so flat, the reason why you might feel so parched kind of emotionally is because you're not in the game one way or the other. In other words, Packer makes this argument. You should feel the pain and you should weep over abortion and racism and injustice and oppression. We should weep over those things. Every funeral I do, I tell the people, even if you've had a great long life with this person and we're we're confident they're with the Lord in heaven and they were ready to go. There's still at funerals a moment of rage, a, a moment of this is not the way this should be. I shouldn't bury my parents. I shouldn't bury my kids. This is not how the world was created. And then at the same time, we should celebrate more, like Packer said, believers rejoice when God is honored and vindicated and feel the acutest stress when they see God flouted. We should rejoice anytime we see God honored. Anytime we see somebody confess to somebody else. Anytime we see a small act of kindness or grace or a little cup of water given to somebody in need. All of those things, our hearts should come alive emotionally. Yes, God is doing a great work in this world. The thing we can't do is just check out. And that's why your Christianity, for some of you, might feel so dry because you've just, you've just checked out emotionally. You're just checking the boxes. Look, you take anybody to a Clemson football game, anybody, and it's the last 10 seconds, and uh, you're down by two, and you have a field goal to win the game, and you just have anybody there. The, the kick goes up, and it hits the goalpost and ricochets off Everybody in the stadium, everybody who's a Clemson fan is going to go, oh, everybody's going to groan. Everybody. If it goes through, everybody is going to go, yes, and you're going to throw beer on the person beside you, and you're going to hug the person you've never met, and you're, you know, you're just doing all the things. You're hugging all these people. You're like, I've never met you. I was beside, <laughs> I was beside this one guy one time uh, at a football game. This was a Panthers game, actually, and he was about 6'8", about 300 pounds, and uh, there's a great play, and we went to hug each other, and I found myself just like in his sweaty stomach, just like that. <laughs> I was like, I would never have hugged you any other way besides we just scored a touchdown. How did I get to this place? Nobody at that Clemson game, nobody in the last 10 seconds when the kick is about to go up, nobody is going to say, I'm going to go get a Coke. 
This might be a great time. I don't think anybody's uh, back there at the concessions. But that's how we live as Christians so often. We should feel the victories and celebrate what God's doing in this world. And we should feel the pain. We should be emotionally there with God. And in Christianity, let me tell you how beautiful Christianity is. It's so beautiful because there's room for joy and there's room for grief. Those things are included. Christianity is not a religion that says, get it together. And Christianity is not a religion that says on the other side, just wear all your emotions on your sleeve. For Mother's Day, we have this um, tradition. Uh, I generally cook for everybody because I have, I have yet to convince my kids that this is actually your mom, not my mom. Uh, and we're still kind of working on that. So I'll generally cook a meal for everybody. And then kind of our tradition is we watch home videos. It's not what we do on Father's Day. On Father's Day, we get five guys and watch golf. But on, on Mother's Day, you know, we put in some home videos. And we saw one. Uh, I'm going to have to pay my kids a lot of money because I have to pay them when I use them in illustrations. But we, we saw one where Daniel was two or three, and it was his birthday, and he is just bawling like toddlers can bawl. You know, just wailing, weeping, and gnashing of teeth on biblical proportions. And we're trying to feed, Elizabeth is trying to feed him cake, and he just won't eat it. And he'd get a little taste of the sugar in his mouth, and he'd stop crying for a second, and then he'd start crying again, and she'd like just shove cake in his mouth. The girls have learned coping mechanisms, so they're not saying a word. They're just over there eating their ice cream, like pretending nothing's happening. Daniel is crying. Elizabeth is crying. But she's not crying uh, tears of sorrow. She's crying tears of laughter over how ridiculous the whole scene is. And I thought, man, that's so much like our relationship with the Lord. He is almost with a, a smirk on his faith, face saying, I desire to give you all good things. I'm trying to give you cake. <laughs> You're going to love it. And we cry and we you know, kind of keep all that at bay. And he's saying, no, I want to give, I want to lead you to great quiet pastures. Just let me lead you. Here's the other point. Emotions need to be recognized. Look at verse three and four. My tears have been my food day and night. While they were saying to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them into the procession of the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Emotions, here the psalmist, he recognizes them. He doesn't put them at bay. Look at what he says. My tears have been my food day and night. Uh, the beautiful thing about Christianity, another one, is this. You don't have to feel bad when you feel bad. In other words, it's okay to not be okay. And here in this text, he says, look, my emotions have taken me to this place where, where is my God? I don't, they're taunting me now. Maybe your God doesn't exist. And then look at verse 4. In verse 4, he says, this is what I remember. I remember being in a community and worshiping. It's so critical as we're emotional beings to do this in community because in community is where we find grace. In community is where we find mercy. In community is where you find forgiveness extended to you from one to another. Corey Ten Boom, she writes about forgiveness because some of your emotions right now, if you think about it, let me just pause again. It's some of your emotions or feeling bitterness 
or a grievance over somebody who's harmed you. Corey Ten Boom had a struggle with this, and she said, my tears fed me day and night. She couldn't get over this thing that had been done to her. She was speaking in a town, and she went to this Lutheran church, didn't know the guy, knocked on the door. The pastor answered the door. She said, I can't, this wrong has been done to me, and I can't get past it emotionally. Here's what the sexton did, or the pastor said. Up in that church tower you see over there is a bell, which is rung by pulling the rope. But you know what? After the sexton lets go of the rope, the bell keeps swinging. The first ding, then a second dong, slower and slower until there's a ding, and then a dong, and then it stops. I believe the same thing is true of forgiveness. When we forgive, we take our hand off the rope. But if we've been tugging at the same grievances for a long time, we shouldn't be surprised if the old angry thoughts keep coming for a while. They're just the dings and the dongs of the old bell slowing down. She goes on to the right. And so it proved to be true. There were a few more midnight reverberations, a couple more dings when the subject came to my mind. But the willingness of the matter had gone from them. They came less and less often, and they stopped finally altogether. We can trust God not only above our emotions, but also above our thoughts. So some of you, if we pause right now, and we say, how are you feeling emotionally? And if some of you are bitter or angry at grievances done to you, then you have to quit pulling the rope. You have to quit, quit like emotionally feeling like, I'm going to get angry again. I'm going to find a way to get angry at him again today for the things he did or didn't do. And you don't just let go of the rope. You actually turn the whole situation over to God who forgives. That's how you get past it. So I would ask you, let me pause again. What are you not letting go of? What have you not turned over to Christ to solve? What grievances are you still wringing in your life? Something that was done to you or against you. Third point, emotions are embraced without enabling. Uh, This will go very quickly. Verse five, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, and I will again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Miser. I won't go into it too much, but Hermon is a very, very north part of Israel. The guy's all alone. He's not in community. That's part of his problem. Verse 7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands a steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to my rock, to my, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Now, interestingly, in Psalm 42, uh, a lot of times you'll find the same language, but it's language from a psalmist who says, I have sinned and I have done this thing. And now my bones are waxing old and I, I can't find my way back to God. And I don't know where he is because of this sin I've done. Not so in Psalm 42. In Psalm 42, there's no confession of sin. 
Psalm 42 is just one of those normal patterns that if you're a Christian for an extended period of time, you will have times in your life where you feel like God has altogether abandoned you. You'll have times where you feel like, oh, he's nowhere close. And when that happens, you need to know that's normal. You need to know that's part of the psalmist's experience. That's part of all of us. To say, I can't find you anymore. When I pray, it feels like it's bouncing off the ceiling. I read my Bible. It doesn't feel like anything's happening. And what is so beautiful about Christianity is Christianity says, that's okay. You're going to be okay. In other words, look at what he says. I, I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? <laughs> the beautiful thing about this is he turns it into a prayer. Now, this year we're studying, um, we're reading through the scripture, right, together as a church. And if you've fallen off that bandwagon, it's okay. Jump back on tomorrow morning. Give yourself grace and kindness. Keep going. Read the abbreviated one or not. Next year, Lord willing, we'll study and look at prayer all year. And uh, one of the things I want to kind of seed you with already is this. One of the best ways to pray is to find whatever emotion you're feeling, whatever feeling you're feeling. It could be contentment. It could be joy, it could be gratitude, it could be thankfulness, it could be anxiety, it could be fear, it could be depression, it could be anything. Find that emotion and then pray that way. Pray that in. God, I am so, I'm so nervous about going to this dinner party where I don't know anybody. Would you be a presence with me? God, I am so frustrated with my kids. Would you help me have patience? God, I feel so, I feel so insecure. I feel like such a failure because... I can't keep a job and I can't provide for my family the way I want to. Or on the other hand, God, I am so thankful that I have life and breath and you've given me this beautiful day in this backyard where I can cook barbecue in. Or God, I'm so content with how you've made me. Find your emotion, find what it is, and then take that and offer it as a prayer. Because, last point, emotions should point to truth. Now look at this last verse, verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my God and my salvation. See, emotions, let me say this clearly, emotions aren't necessarily truth. I'm not saying just follow your emotions at all. I'm saying whatever your emotion is can point to a greater truth. So his emotion, verse 11 I'm cast down, my soul's in turmoil, I'm not doing well, but here's the truth. I will hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So emotions don't necessarily lead to truth. I mean, don't necessarily show us the truth, but they should lead us to truth. In the famous debate between uh, Bertrand Russell and Frederick Copleston, I just reread it actually the other day, and uh, Bertrand Russell was he wrote a book called Why I'm an Atheist. Uh, so he was not a Christian. And Frederick Copson was a Catholic priest, and they had the debate. They used to have great debates like that. We don't do that as much anymore. And in the debate, they got to this role of emotions. Here's what Copleston said. What's your justification for distinguishing between good and bad, or how do you view the distinction between them? Russell, the nonbeliever. I don't have any justification any more than I have distinguishing between blue or yellow what's my distinguishing feature for justifying between blue and yellow i can just see that they're different copleson 
Well, that's a good justification. I agree. You distinguish between blue and yellow by seeing them. So you distinguish good and bad by what faculty? Russell, by my feelings. I distinguish good and bad by how I'm feeling about it. Coppleston, by your feelings? Well, that's what I'm asking. You think good and evil have reference simply to feeling? And he goes on and on and on, uh, Russell does, to say, yeah, if Hitler feels like he wants to kill 9 million Jews, he has the right to do that. See, with no truth, (laughs) with no moral underpinning, your emotions will lead you anywhere. But if we could say, like he says in verse 11, my soul is cast down, but I will hope in God, and I will again praise him. There's the truth, because he's my salvation and he's my God. If I think about him, then it will run out any emotion that's in me that shouldn't be there. Or as Thomas Chalmers said, the best way to overcome the world is not with morality or self-discipline. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellencies of it. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, Christ. And the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is the expulsive power of the new one. Hey, so when you're parched, when you say, where is my God? I can't find you. I can't see you. I'm depressed. I feel dry spiritually. When that happens to you, and you will, when you say, I thirst for you, God, you have to think not just of yourself. You have to have the expulsive power of a new affection. And you have to remember that on the cross is when Christ said, I thirst. I thirst too. That on the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And on the cross, what did he thirst for? He thirsted for a relationship with you. He thirsted to know you and to be known by you. That's what he thirsted for, a longing to know you. I'm going to read one quote, one story, and we're done. G.K. Chesterton, I've read this to you many years ago, but it might be my favorite quote of all time. I absolutely love this quote. At the end of his book, Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton talks about the role of emotion in Christ's life. And here's what he says. Joy, which is a small publicity of the pagan, is a gigantic secret of the Christian. And as I close this chaotic volume, I open again the strange small book from which all Christianity came. And I'm haunted by the kind of confirmation that this tremendous figure which fills the gospel towers in this respect, as in every other, above all the thinkers who thought themselves large. His pathos was natural, almost casual. The Stoics, ancient and modern, were proud of concealing their tears. Jesus never concealed his tears. He showed them plainly on his open face at any daily sight, such as the far sight of his native city. Yet he concealed something. Solemn supermen and imperial diplomats are proud of restraining their anger. But Jesus never restrained his anger. He flung furniture down the front steps of the temple. He asked men how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. Yet he restrained something. I say it with reverence. There was in that shattering personality a thread that must be called shyness. There was something that he hid from all men when he went to the mountain to pray. There was something 
that he covered constantly by abrupt silence or impetuous isolation. There was some one thing that was too great for God to show us when he walked upon the earth. And I've sometimes fancied that it was his mirth, his abiding joy and hope. The secret of the Christian, that even when we're depressed or downcast, we can still say, but I hope in God. Two weeks ago, I was in Birmingham preaching at a pastor's conference, which I love to do, but they're exhausting because I tend to be vulnerable in the pulpit, and so you just end up getting like 100 counseling appointments uh, from other pastors. Um, The way it played out, I found myself at this dinner party of this really bougie mansion on Wednesday night uh, with the pastor's uh, this private equity guy in Birmingham, and we were in the backyard, and it was me and this Asian American, he's Korean actually, pastor from LA, right from downtown LA, and then this uh, 30-year-old black pastor from Detroit who now has a church in Nashville. And we spent three hours together, two or three hours, and it was phenomenal. How'd you become a Christian? How are you dealing with the racism? Uh, what was your thing of George Floyd? How are you dealing with all the Asian Americans? I mean, it was just, it was just phenomenal. Uh, during that time, uh, the Asian guy, uh, he kept like squatting his eyes like this. And then he, he took off his glasses and he cleaned them real quick. And then he put them back on. He was clearly bothered. And he kept like looking. I said, bro, what's wrong with you? And he said, there's lights. I see all these lights. And I looked out and I said, those are fireflies. And he said, what? He had never seen, grew up in L.A., apparently too much smog for fireflies, had never seen a firefly in his life. And I said, you can catch them. He said, no, you can't. I said, no, you can catch them. He said, won't they bite you? I was like, no. So predictably, 30 seconds later, me and this Asian pastor are running through the backyard of this bougie mansion, you know, trying to catch them. And he couldn't figure out. He was like, they light up and they leave. I'm like, yes, I'm from the South. I can tell you how this whole thing works. I catch one and I said, hold out your hand. He was so nervous. I finally shook it, put it in his hand. He held it open. It lit up in his hand and then it flew away. And he looked at me and with these big eyes, he said, what else has God made that I don't know about? What else has God made that I don't know about? What a beautiful picture of hope. What else out there could happen because of my belief in Christ? What else could God do? What else could he solve? What else could he show me in this life? The black guy from Detroit, inner city Detroit, doesn't even know, had no clue who his dad was. Uh, went to Mississippi State on a full ride. Didn't run till his freshman year and was good enough. He ran in like one big meet and uh, Mississippi State called him and said, you got a full ride. We raced in the backyard as well. <laughs> and uh, wasn't a believer. And somebody at Mississippi State had the courage to invite him to FCA. And he went three times. And then on the third time, he approached somebody and he said, how do I get what y'all have? You're in the same life situation, but y'all are hopeful and y'all have joy. You know what led him to the Lord? Watching other Christians with the same struggles and the same fears put their hope in God and then became a Christian and now he's a pastor at Strong Tower Fellowship in Nashville. Put your hope 
in God. Now let's do this We're closing here. I want you to think about whatever emotion you've had this last week or whatever you're feeling now or whatever you think you will fear, any anxiety or anything in the future. And it could be a good emotion or a bad emotion. I want you to figure out what it is. What are you feeling right now? And now close your eyes, take that emotion, and make it into a prayer.